There are a lot of questionable live-action adaptations out there, especially when Hollywood is involved. Oh, joy of joys. Does this mean I can finally talk about Dragon Ball Evil? I will send to you with a hammer. Oh, okay. At least Battle Angel has been in cinemas for over two weeks now, so is it any good? <laughs> can young All Might leave me on red? Is Chica the best love detective? Launch the Ava, Kyle! Ava, launch! Tetsuo! Kanida! Onita? It's over 9,000! Nani? Konnichiwa and welcome to a new episode of Kawaii Fi Radio, the podcast where we look into the world of anime and manga. I'm your host Kyle and joining me are my co-hosts Coco and Kenny. How you doing? Very well. Now, um, I think uh, you know where I want to start today. Domestic yes. girlfriend. Kyle, you have been sort of a ghostly spectre walking around the studio for a while now. Are you okay? Well, uh, in the immortal words of uh, Johnny Cash, uh, I hurt myself today. Oh, you read uh, the uh, manga. It was uh, over a few days, wasn't uh, it? I did. <laughs> and so, um, as you know, I was quite worried about how this adaptation for the anime was going to come out at the start of uh, the season. It sounded like it was going to be very, very adult-oriented, a lot of flesh and blah. And we, and we saw Eki. We, yeah. we saw the tag Eki everywhere. Never have I been so wrong. Yeah, it's turned out to be, for its subject matter, quite a compelling anime. It compelled Kyle to tears, didn't it? Yeah, I, I binge-read over 200 chapters over the course of about three or four days, um, and I I was broken. Yeah, I remember oh, when you came downstairs, because <laughs> you'd been obviously up all night reading this, and we were just like, that looks like death warmed up. What is going on with this guy? Yeah. You okay? Um, yeah, man. <laughs> it was horrible to witness. I don't think he's but, okay. So <laughs> I have been burned by romance mangas in the past. Nisekoi in particular, I did not enjoy mm. um, the way that ended. Um, obviously, everyone has their own person who they believe would be the best partner for the main character. And I s- swore to myself I would never get invested again. <laughs> but you didn't see this coming, did you? I didn't. I no. didn't. And I've, I'm wrecked. And I'm not the only one. No, not um, by far. I went onto the Domestic Girlfriend Reddit and there is a support network going on there. So I'm going to give you a few comments I went and tracked down from Reddit um, to give you an idea of the impact this manga is having on the readers. And this ought to be good. It it it's destroying people, and it's in a beautiful way. In a beautiful way. So (laughs) here's a couple of the comments. After I finished, I sat and stared at the ceiling, pondering everything for like an hour. How is it possible this manga makes me feel like I'm the one that just went through a breakthrough? Can I ask? Was it an unfamiliar ceiling? (laughs) (laughs) come on man (laughs) so um, another one a lot of things in this manga hit close to home when it comes to the heartbreak and death I binged 200 chapters in a day I want to cry it feels good not to be the only one after 100 chapters of happiness all that's left is regret I got a big glass of depression after reading this I'm now empty. And it's not just guys being affected by this There's there's plenty of girls on there too one of the most Prominent ones that stuck out to me was just finished binge reading the today and it feels like something is stuck in my throat. How can I go on? Damn. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to reading it too, but I just, I'm not a fan of reading manga on off a screen. I love to have it in my hand, 
read it as a book. That's just what works well for me. And I really would love to get a hold of this translated. I, I think the biggest issue with it is that because the anime started and the anime started when a major plot development happens, which um, sends all the characters involved through a lot of pain, emotional distress, um, questionable interactions, as, as we expect in any sort of romance anime where people will, you know, come up to loggerheads. And everyone's jumped on board after watching the first couple of episodes going, wow, this is actually quite interesting, it's quite dramatic. And then they've read it all the way through and binged it and hit this, two, uh, I'd say about 20 chapters of badness mm. where everything's just gone to pot. No. And everyone is just like, this was not what I was looking for. I just have to think about this from the writer of the manga's point of view. What must it be like to have so much power over your audience to just reduce <laughs> so many hundreds of people to tears yeah, and depression? She's done a good job with that. Well, she's done yeah. a fantastic job. Yes. And, you know, it, it also doesn't help that the intro song for the anime is utterly amazing, so that's been on repeat for days. Oh, it's been in my head. For, for a week and a half, I think. Yeah, yeah so thanks to this anime, I've discovered her as well and listened to a bunch of the songs and, oh, such a smashing voice. Yeah, she, and she's so, so young. This is, she hasn't even had her first proper album out. This is like an EP. Just so. what an opportunity for success to just feature on an anime like this and just mm -hmm. be discovered. And we have uh, linked one of her, well, her doing an acoustic version of the intro song on our Facebook, so do mm -hmm. check that out if oh you're Oh yes, interested. that was her testing her new guitar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what a test. Well, uh, on to happier subjects. Um, food Wars! Food Wars! <laughs> so, uh, it delivered! It did. It delivered! We, we I'd had heard, not watched this before. I'd heard of, the, I've heard of this anime. It had been recommended by a number of friends, a number of fans, just people were just saying, when are you going to talk about this? And, yeah. oh, God, why did not we not listen? Why did we not see this sooner? Oh, <laughs> I, I, I will tell goodness. you, it totally lifted me out of that slump of domestic yeah. girlfriend. <laughs> oh, my God. It was like watching the ridiculous frat boys from Grand Blue, except just cooking. Cooking, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's um, for people who haven't seen the series yet, all two of you. Yeah, this is a <laughs> show about uh, people cooking delicious food. Such delicious food, in fact... That it causes people to... Really enjoy it. Really enjoy I mean, it. I mean, react. really mm. enjoy their food. Think <laughs> Darkness Konosuba. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, ahead in this episode, our look into the history of anime is going to continue as we revisit Osama Tezuka and talk about his legacy both in animation and in Japanese culture. We're looking at the big live-action manga adaptations that are making headline around the world. That's Alita Battle Angel. We'll also be looking at the original manga, which rode the wave of that 80s cyberpunk culture as well. And while we're talking about cyberpunk, we're delving deep into the back catalogue to talk about a pair of cyberpunk classics, original mm. Bubblegum Crisis and its 2040 adaptation. And there also have been a lot of anime and manga announcement in the past fortnight, so let's kick into the news. Making headlines. Really? Sort of. Anime News. Nominees for the 23rd Tesco Osama Cultural Prize and the English cast of Fruits Basket announced. This is Kawaii Fi Anime News. Mariah No Mariah has taken home the 
Animation of the Year award at the Japan Academy Prizes this week, beating the likes of Dragon Ball Super Broly, Penguin Highway and Detective Conan Zero the Enforcer to the prestigious award. The winners were announced on Friday at the Grand Prince Hotel in Tokyo, and while the other nominees may have missed out on the top prize, they all receive an award of excellence. Mirai was also nominated for the Oscar for Best Animated Feature Film, but lost out to Spider-Man Enter the Spider-Verse. Prolific animator Yasuo Otsuka also received an association special award for lifetime achievement. The nominees for the 23rd Tezuka Osama Cultural Prize were announced this week with 11 manga selected in this year's awards. The awards recognise work that best follows the traditions of legendary manga Kai Osama Tezuka since 1997. Notable nominees include Mashihiro no Oto, Astra Lost in Space, a second nomination for The Promised Netherland and a fourth nomination for Umimachi Diary. A manga series has to release a compiled volume in 2018 to enter the awards, with previous winners including Golden Kamoi, Beast Stars, A Silent Voice, and Fulminal Alchemist. The winners across three categories will be announced in late April. Another wave of anime has been announced in the past few weeks, with many coming from manga sources. Harem tutoring manga We Never Learn announced an anime version is coming with an April 7th release date. An adaptation of science club manga Koisuri Asteroid is also on the way, according to the upcoming April cover of Manga Time Kirikarakat magazine. Coming of Age Literature Club manga A Maidens in Your Savage Season will premiere in July anime season, with the manga also being confirmed for an English translation starting in April. Kodansha's Young Magazine has announced Plane Crash Survival Manga Are You Lost? will see an anime adaptation too, following a successful two-run in the magazine. Light novel If It's For My Daughter, I'd Even Defeat a Demon Lord is also receiving an adaptation, and a new original anime series called Grand Belm is in production from the director and character designers of ReZero. Part 2 of Attack on Titan's third season has had its broadcast date announced, with April 29th the date the Titanic series returns. According to the anime's website, this run will only have 10 episodes, explaining the later start date in the season. Staying with Attack on Titan, its first season along with Season 1 of My Hero Academia are no longer available on Crunchyroll, while a rights agreement with Funimation is sorted out. The content sharing agreement ended between the two anime streaming hubs in November last year, but Seasons 2 and 3 of the series can be found on both services. Season 2 of Is Wrong to Pick Up Girls in a Dungeon will be coming to screens in Japan's summer, according to staff and cast of the series. The announcement was made at a preview screening of the series Arrow of Orion film, with the series continuing the light novel story of Argonaut Belcranel and Goddess Hestia. In the world of manga, a number of announcements have come out. Talking Doll series Rose and Maiden Zero will be ending on March 19th, along with Dokuni Cooking's last issue expected on March 8th. The Attack on Titan prequel manga Before the Fall is also finishing on March 26th after a six-year run. Mahjong tournament manga Saki will be taking a two-month hiatus, repeating previous two-month breaks in 2016, 17 and 18, and a new Gintama manga is coming, but only to a new dedicated Gintama app that is due for release soon. No official release date has been announced, but we're expecting it sometime this year. And finally, in dub news, an English translation is on its way for the third season of volleyball anime Haikyuu. A fourth season is also due, with a kickoff event planned for September. And the upcoming Fruits Basket reboot have announced several casts for the English voice dub, with Laura Bailey, Eric Vale, Jerry Jewell and John Bergmeiser reprising their roles from the previous adaptation of the series. And that's your anime news for week ending March 3rd, 2019. That's a lot of manga and anime coming. Yes, oh, yes, it is. And I cannot wait to see that string hold up what it's been <laughs> holding up again, because that is the most ridiculous part of the anime and I love it. 
Oh, good old Dan Matchy. So, um, Arrow of Orion film's actually an original story. The, so, the film, at a oh, really? film that is for um, Is It Wrong to Pick Up Girls in a Dungeon is not based on anything written in light novels or manga. It's a completely original story, oh. which they have talked to the writer about. But Will that be canon great. then? I'm not sure. That, that's, um, that, that's kind of the big question. So, we'll find out. Apparently, it's like a sort of side story, so it shouldn't interrupt the main story, but... Mm-hmm. We'll have to find out. I'm a little intrigued by that uh, Are You Lost one. I have yeah. to wonder, will J.J. Abrams somehow be involved? <laughs> <laughs> will there be a giant polar bear on the island? <laughs> Ooh, that's a dated reference. <laughs> you know, I never actually watched that show properly. The only episode I watched was that episode where they discussed that number. There's oh, a number that's... Yeah. It, it's like the number 23, but it's a different one and it's in everything and it's just freaked me out <laughs> it freaked me out and i was like for, for, for the next couple of weeks or so i was seeing it everywhere <laughs> nuts yeah. mm. oh, on that note though on, on the on the term of nuts uh marina marai didn't do well at the oscars uh, no no so it, it, it did it did get into that award ceremony but um obviously it's uh there's so many good anime adaptations mm. or animated adaptations out at the moment and it's very hard to b- compete with spider-man into the spider-verse because that has mm. been a phenomenal hit also, mm-hmm. the Oscars are American, and being as it's an American mm-hmm. show, it's more culturally palatable to to their audience, I think. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I think I look at the Oscars in the same way I've started looking at critics lately. I just haven't really cared for the opinion of the elite. Yeah, mm. well, I mean, you, you have a look at some of the reviews we've seen for very popular films recently, and the, the critic mm-hmm. review does not match up with the audience review at yeah. all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you haven't heard of Marai no Marai, um, which literally translates as Marai of the Future, it's a young boy story. Um, his name's Kun. He feels like he's forgotten by his family when his little sister Marai is born. And he then runs away from home, and he stumbles into a magical garden that is actually a time-travelling gateway. So he ends up encountering his mother as a young girl and Mariah, his sister, as a young woman. Um, wow. And it really helps to change his perspective so, of, of you know having a little sister. So the timelines are inversed? Yeah. It's, wow. it's really cool. That's Very it. unique take on the mm-hmm. whole time travel notion. That's yeah. And, and, you know, it's so interesting as well because, like, the, the first child born is born just having the parents and the second child is born mm. sharing the parents. The first child has to learn to share and that's learn usually to adapt to it, yeah. such a difficult time for a transitioning. And it sounds like that sort of thing is covered in the anime, which oh, yeah. can't wait to see it. Cool Wi-Fi Radio. Anime history. Yes. So the last time we spoke about Tezuka Osamu, we were talking about his manga artistry at the beginning and middle of his career. Mm. Um, I believe we left off just as he became an anime producer and director. So let's dive in because there's a lot more to him than Astro Boy. Um, mm. And let's start with Journey to the West. Oh. Which is prevalent. Which is prevalent. so much. Yeah. Hang on a he did a rendition of Wukong's Journey to the West. Yes, he yeah. did. I had um, no idea. It was such an inspiration that he created a manga adaptation called Boku no Songoku, 
which was then adapted by Toei Animation into an anime series running from 1952 to 1959 and eventually ended up in a film called Alakazam the Great in 1960. <laughs> okay, that's not where I was expecting that to go. Neither. Yeah. So uh, I'm just like, Son Goku, aha! No, no. He was consulted consistently on the adaptation and this involvement introduced him to animation. So before that, he'd only done manga? Yep. Wow. He saw animation, he saw that he could produce limited animation for the new TV market because TVs were starting out then. Uh, He knew he had good material because his stuff is so popular. He knew there was a strong demand for modern, fast-paced fantasy and also his contract had expired. So (laughs) it was time to jump ship. And he created Mushi Productions Hmm. and he used to sign his name off as Osamushi. Mushi being bug. That was his first production house. What, what was the kind of the, the big Hallmark films he was involved in? I do remember seeing something to do with The Lion King. Yeah. Um, obviously, there's Astro Boy, but also Jungle Emperor Leo, mm. a.k.a. Kimber the White Lion. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. I um, have heard of this. Now, there's some controversy around the yes. um, connection to this with Lion King, isn't there? Yeah. So, so this, this ran from 1965 to 1966. His original name was Leo. Mm. Uh, the MGM Lion's name was Leo and it was trademarked. So when oh. it went to the West, he had to change the name, which worked. So he's born on a ship, almost instantly orphaned, hmm. and manages to survive through other animals helping him. This bears a similarity to the plight of many war orphans in Japan. Hmm. Born in an unfamiliar environment, orphaned, dependent on the help of others but yeah like you were saying it's interesting to note the similarities between disney's lion king and kimber the white lion this has been discussed Mm. widely online and this is literally a full circle discussion here because tesco was quite inspired by disney to begin with he was so disney was an inspiration to him and um there was one particular experimental film that we watched this week tales of a street corner And you can see, I mean, it was an experimental piece, but you can see some inspiration in the artwork. A lot of connection to the the way a city changes during Mm. a a war. Absolutely. And there was, I thought that there was some amazing animation work in that, particularly at the end where the camera starts shaking as as you're looking up into the sky and Mm. with this beautiful music playing over the top. It was just... I really recommend you have a look. Um, That that can be found on YouTube, funnily enough. Yes, it's on YouTube. So just look up Tales of a Street Corner. Back to Kimba. Apparently Matthew Broderick, when Mm. he um, was approached for the voice of Simba, just assumed it was a Kimba adaptation. What? Yeah. He's just like, yeah, I just huh. thought that I was going to be voicing Kimber, except for... But you know what? None of the executives have ever given it creative due. Really? None of them. And there was a letter signed by multiple Japanese manga artists mm. when it was released in Japan, just asking Disney to acknowledge due credit. Mm. But of course, it would have cost them money. Yeah, so they wouldn't have done it. Yeah. And considering a lot of Japan's animation 
connections to America. I mm-hmm. mean, you, you would have American animators go to Japan because the, the amount co- of products. The co-director. Mm-hmm. The co-director of The Lion King denied ever having seen Kimber the White Lion. Uh-huh. He lived in Tokyo in the 80s and worked as an animator. Oh, you could on. not have missed it. What? Was he blind? No. Oh. This is... this. No, it's no. That's oh, shameful. It mm. really is, to be honest. Um, well, we, we, anyway. could, we could stay on Kimberly yes. White Line for ages. I'm going to quell my rage and move on. <laughs> Pardon me. I think we need to next cover Ashto No Joe, which was mm. not an original Tezuka story, oh. but it was produced by Mushi Productions. That name no, rings that, a bell. Yeah, that mm-hmm. is what the original concept for Megalobox comes from. Yes. Oh, wow. And I have some news for you guys about that, actually. Oh. Two days ago, it was announced that the the artist for the original Ashton Joe, Tetsuya Chiba, was named the new principal of Bunsei University of Art. Oh. What? <laughs> yeah, he is 80 years old. Wow. And he... he um. He aims to further raise manga as Japan's representative culture outside of Japan. And he's been a professor there since 2005 when it set up a manga department. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, he that was... Is, that is fantastic. What's so interesting about Ashton Joe, which translated means Tomorrow's Joe. It was first published in 1960 and ran until 1973. And Japan right then, economically speaking, hmm. was in upheaval. Um, cultural and social norms were changing and Ashton no Joe was adopted by the student movement as a symbol of the lower class's struggle for survival. Hmm. He's an orphan who preferred the streets to the orphanage, ran away, and he ends up... Hmm. He's a tragic hero, though there is some debate online whether he does die at the end of the manga or not. Which was similar to the way they did Megalobox where they left it very questionable as to... How, what happens? How that last fight ends. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. I mean, obviously, if you keep watching past that, you then find out some information very, at the very, very end. But mm. the, the fact that they decided to honour that sort of, you know, very vague ending is yeah. pretty cool. The ambiguity, a- yeah. Absolutely. Ashta Nojo is so worth watching. Mm. It's so chock full of themes. Um, Modernisation is in there very big. Uh, he eschews the boxing gear used by all else in favour of his own muscles in Megalobox, which, mm. you know, just demonstrates his desire to not give up. Yeah. So th- I think there was another um, series uh, he was involved in, which is apparently as popular as Astro Boy? Blackjack. Okay, what's Blackjack? So Blackjack uh, comes from Tezka's own background as a doctor. Yeah. He never practiced. Many of his manga creations featured medical-based storylines because Mm. medicine was quite prominent in his history. He had a grandfather called Tezuka Ryoan, and he was a doctor to the samurai during the Meiji period, and he helped to introduce Western medicine to Japan. Wow. Which was very effective. Not to Um, mention difficult back in those days. Japan, in its history, was quite isolationist. Very Mm. difficult. So for Tezuka, a doctor was not just someone who healed the body, but someone who appreciated the value of life and inspired others to value it as well. Hmm. And this is demonstrated a lot in his character for Black, of Blackjack, who's a gifted surgeon. No formal medical training doesn't have a, li- a license to practice. And he's a complex character. He was injured when he was younger. 
mm. in an accident that his mother died from and caused him a lot of stress. Therefore, he's got a white streak in his hair. Mm. He also has on the left side of his face, he has received a skin graft from a friend of his who is half African. So mm. he's and he's kept it that way. So he's got a dark skin patch on yeah. his face. Wow. Yeah, and he's kept it that way as a mark of respect for his friend. Oh, that's amazing. Fascinating. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so his incredible medical skill is always in demand and he al- always demands an extortionate sum of money for his services. Okay, that doesn't sound very heroic. But see, with regards to this, according to Mango scholar Ada Palmer, the outrageous fees he charges are a test to make sure his patients truly appreciate that life itself is more valuable than any amount of money, which is Tezka's humanism and his pacifism coming yeah. back to the fore. All right, so uh, obviously he's had that manga history as well, but he's mm. also got quite a strong legacy that's in turn... Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there were two awards that I'm aware of. The Tezka Awards. Now, that which, was a magazine-based one, wasn't it? Yes, that began in 1971, sponsored by Shueisha Publishing, presented biannually by Tezuka himself oh, wow. until his passing and awarded to new manga artists in various categories. On this committee was included Akira Toriyama, <laughs> Aichiro wow. Oda, who wrote One Piece, yeah. uh, Kazuki Takahashi, Yu-Gi-Oh!, <laughs> uh, Masashi Kishimoto, who wrote Naruto, Wow. And um, Takahiko Inoue, Slam Dunk. Wow. What, what yeah. a class so of people to be names. judged by. Yeah. 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 And there's another called the Tezuka Osamu Cultural Prize. Which we were discussing in the news. Yeah, that mm. was founded and sponsored by Asahi Shimbun, which is one of Japan's major newspapers. Mm. And um, they give prizes. Uh, they give the grand prize for the excellent work during the year, creative award, the short story award and the special award. Now, there's actually some pretty notable um, previous winners to this. In 2011, Fullmetal Alchemist um, won it. 2013, Kingdom won it. Um, Kingdom's actually a very popular uh, manga in Japan. Uh, Space Brothers, also similarly very popular. They won in 2014. And Mm. 2015, A Silent Voice. Recognise that name? A very deserving title. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Last year, some of these names you'll recognise. Golden Kamoi. Yes. Beastars. Ashita no Joe. Oh, yes, such a good series as well. So those those three all got the awards last year, which is you know it's it's phenomenal timing as well, considering last year we had Megalobox. So it it really must have brought the readership back to the series for it to actually get there. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we'll uh, leave Tezka there and let him rest in peace. We'll come yeah. back to uh, some more anime history next week. Kawaii Fire Radio. So good. So 80s. Retro classics. Yes, we're going deep into the back catalogue with a retro classic. We are going to be talking about something from the start of the cyberpunk era. Bubblegum Crisis. (gasps) And uh, a lot of us uh, who are in our sort of age bracket getting towards 30 would have... At least seen it in passing, I think, if they were anime fans. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I rewatched a bunch of episodes in preparation for this, and yeah, I remembered so much about it. Yeah, so um, Mm -hmm. I think we should probably start right at the beginning because it's quite interesting how this all came about. So the original series was just called Bubblegum Crisis, and that was set in 2032 Tokyo, um, where Tokyo had been split into kind of two halves due to a massive earthquake. Now, Mm. This wasn't mentioned in the more recent adaptation, and we'll get to that in a little while. 
but it's uh, basically there's a mega corporation called Genome, and they're essentially pulling the strings of the country from the shadows. And it's really fascinating to see how they kind of go about it. Um, Genome makes robots that they call boomers. Um, they're meant to be like artificial life forms that help humans, but they're being corrupted and turned into monsters. So Wicked. <laughs> Now, the series focuses on the Nightsabers. They're an all-female group who wear powered exoskeletons to fight crime across the city, which mostly involves rogue boomers because mm. it seems the AD police who are designed to deal with them aren't very good. It's very strongly influenced by Blade Runner, isn't it? It is. It is. So the, I think some of the motivable developments, so uh, Toshimichi Suzuki, who's the um, creator of it, he originally planned to remake the 1982 film Technopolice. Now, that's a mecha police anime film where the police have to stop a prototype tank being hijacked. Mm-hmm. He was the original creator hmm. of that film, and that wasn't meant to be a film. It was meant to be a series. Okay. Um, And due to the number of problems, because it was done across two studios, two separate companies working in town to make it, it went absolutely down the tube. Mm. And they decided to grab all the animation they'd done so far, slap it together and make it a one-off film. And despite all its failings, he wanted to revisit the story that became Bubblegum Crisis. Now, keep in mind, 1982, we are talking, you know, pretty much when Blade Runner sort of was about to come out Mm. and the ideas around it like mecha anime wasn't huge at this point Mm. either so but strangely a very um fruitful time for the cyberpunk genre in general Mm -hmm. i mean uh you you had uh shiro mazamun and um a bunch a bunch of other creators doing stuff like uh black magic ghost in the shell of course Mm -hmm. came out around that same point uh angel cop oh yeah uh, one of the most violent animes oh yeah Kids, uh, consult mummy and daddy before watching that one. <laughs> um, uh, even, yes, Alita Battle Angel, which we'll, we'll be talking about later in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, same kind of period. The yeah. Cyberpunk was really huge back in the early it 80s. It really was, and there's still a strong love for that culture in there, which we will discuss in a future episode. Um, but what I think is notable in anime history is this is one of the <coughs> earliest anime series to be released with English subtitles without them editing the original content. So this is, you, you know how like you, you'll get ones where they've decided that's not okay for the way we want to adapt the story so they cut out a scene or two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They, they kept the original exactly as it was and just subtitled it. Wow. And that was no censorship or anything similar. That's fascinating. So it was already aimed to go international. It was aimed to go international to an adult market. Fantastic. And that, that's surprising considering the West, especially in the 80s, the Western view on animation. Mm-hmm. So uh, it probably also explains why it didn't do too well. Um, the series also spawned several sequels, including a three-episode continuation by um, Suzuki's Artmic Studio, which was called Bubblegum Crash. And that continued like 12 months after the end of the series, which was only originally eight mm. episodes long. There seems to be a quite a few legal issues. Yeah, yeah, there, there, there were. Um, the, the, the Night Sabers are all aged between 18 and 22 in Bubblegum Crisis. It's left a little bit more vague in 2040. So um, your characters, you've got Cilia, who's the leader of the Night Sabers, and she's the daughter of the original creator of the Boomers. Mm-hmm. So that everyone always wondered um, when watching it until they got later in both series, like, where's all her money come from? <laughs> it's like, well, That's where. <laughs> yes, it's like uh, when you're first introduced to her in 2040, she runs a fashion boutique. Oh, and there's also 
robotic cyber suits and military-grade hardware in her basement. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a front. <laughs> and so she creates the power suits in that version um, based off, uh, apparently, her um, knowledge from her father. Um, someone snuck out some tech from Genome for her to use and she adapts that. Then you've got Pris, who's probably the most prolific lightsaber, and she's a rock singer motorcyclist, and she's an orphan of the massive earthquake which split the city in two. And so she joins a bikey gang, um, and because of that, she dislikes the police. She generally embodies the 80s badass female aesthetic. Mm -hmm. She really does. Then you've got Lena, and Lena in the original Bubblegum Crisis was not good. Mm. She was a normal member of the cult, uh, the group. She was like the most societally acceptable she person didn't stand in the group. out she's an ex-professional dancer who didn't make it and then Celia recruited her because of her athletic abilities but because of that her character was never fleshed out because she was meant to be like you know oh she's just like everyone else so no. she's just got a strong desire to earn money <laughs> <laughs> and enthusiastic no, yeah. and inverse to uh, bubblegum crisis 2040 she mm -hmm. is more fleshed out she has more of a backstory there is a drive there but um I found it a little bit questionable. It's um, <laughs> how she ended up joining them. I want to be a superhero. I'm a superhero. Yeah, even when I like when I first started watching it, it was 2040 that I was mm -hmm. watching on SBS, Same, yeah. and um, I just loved it because I loved anime and it was just all fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand a lot of the tropes that I was seeing, and mm. so I just didn't question anything. But it always seemed to me that I might have missed something in translation when she so easily just basic just just walks in, goes, "I want to join," and yes, is um, given a suit. Okay, yeah, yeah let's uh, take Pris. She is a hard ass. She's a fighter. She give her a cyber suit. She will fight better. Mm -hmm. uh, Nene, who we get to talk about, um, yeah, an employee she, of the AD police. She's an employee of the AD police. Obviously, has some training. She's a hacker, a tech wizard. Exactly, and mm -hmm. so you know, give her a cyber suit. Something's going to come of it. Um, Lena, she works in an office. She works hard. She, she works will hard make it in an happen. office. <laughs> Obviously qualified to wear super military hardware. I mean, in the original Bubblegum Crisis story, and there is a very good reason for the difference in the, uh, the two stories, and I'll get to that in a moment. The original Lena is an uh, ex-professional dancer, which explains mm. why her suit has the ribbon weapons, because she's used to controlling of them and course. throwing them around. And those right. razor-bladed ribbons, it's, it's pretty cool. In... 2040, they never really mention it. And it's just like, she has these cool weapons. How does she know to use them? I don't know. She does. <laughs> um, what's quite unusual, because we're used to anime having very set time for their production. So it's, it's 24 minutes or 23 minutes or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. The episode lengths for this varied a lot. Yeah. For the first series. We're talking from 25 minutes to just shy of an hour across the eight episodes. Wow. It varied immensely. And that's because they were direct to home video. They were never broadcast. Oh. Yeah. Wow. So the very randomly released between 1987, the beginning. So one was literally in like, I think January. And the next chapter was in December in 1987. And then three in the start of 1990, one at the end, and then one in 1991. So spectacularly random. Was not at all like a normal series. Was there a reason behind that? Um, I'm not sure. Um, I, I've been digging and digging. I can't find it. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I was looking into like amounts of episodes, how long, like the years between each thing, and I just sort of figured, okay, they go a few months between release, but no, I had no idea it was so drastic. Yeah, it, it was very odd. And I think that's because they must have decided from the beginning that it was going to be a VHS release, not a um, 
you know, direct to TV. But the, the name convention is actually an interesting origin to it as well because in a 1993 interview, Suzuki explained that the meaning behind the title Bubblegum was to reflect a world in crisis like chewing gum in a bubble that's about to burst. That's yes. so cool. Yeah, I never knew that. So I, I'm, I was quite pleased. I threw Bubblegum Crisis on the pile of animes which had... Uh, Interesting fa- names. Fascinating <laughs> sounding names which didn't exactly seem to reflect... Mm. anything but i had no idea there was actually reasoning behind it it's also the original bubblegum crisis is responsible for spawning tenchi mio <sighs> oh yeah gosh. so it's ma- a reverse it's, isn't yeah. it so you got misaki kajishima and hiroka hayashi who both worked on the ovas and were one of them was a artist and one of them was a writer and they both cited the show as being their inspiration for the harem series tenchi mio because they wanted to lighten up the show's mood due to the serious now, nature d- didn't they say they wanted um a hot springs, a hot episode. springs episode yeah. <laughs> yes yes and they wanted and to who make... doesn't want a hot springs episode it would have lightened things up but the sponsors wouldn't have had it no and they also wanted to make Cilia's brother Mackie the main character instead turning it into a harem mm. so uh. this became their idea for Tenshi Mio and Mackie essentially served as their substitute character for Tenshi Mio until <laughs> they actually went and wrote it um, but you can see in retrospect why they uh, shot that down considering how serious the series is. Mm-hmm. But um, we should jump on to the 2040 adaptation because there's a lot of interesting changes here. So it's a reboot of that 1998 series. It doesn't mm-hmm. continue. It ran for 26 episodes. It was aired. Mm-hmm. Created by a completely different team and studio, AIC, oh. because the original studio, Artmic, went bankrupt. Yes. Which happens for so many mm-hmm. studios. You can, of course, it? see the difference in art style between the two. You can also see the lack of vision in the start of the series compared to the original Bubblegum Crisis. Now, that's not to say it's bad, mm-hmm. but Lena's introduction, as we were discussing earlier, is very vague. Very sudden. It's very sudden. It doesn't make too much sense. It's, it's just kind of like a Deus Ex Machina. Bang, yeah. here's Lena. Whereas in the original series, she was already a night saver. They didn't have to establish how she joined. Mm. Yeah. But I believe she was kind of used as the vessel to introduce you to the night savers yeah. that way. Um, I quite like the fact that, the, you know, for all the 26 episodes, each one of them is named after like a song or an album from the yeah, uh, late 80s, albums. early 90s yeah. rock scene. Yeah. I mean, you've got uh, episodes named after Hendrix songs, mm-hmm. The Doors, Deep Purple. T-Rex, um, yeah. <laughs> which uh, I believe they feature for another series called 20th Century Boys. Yeah. That was yeah. Um, that's something I'd actually love to talk about in a later adaptation because that one had its own live-action movies. Mm-hmm. Now, the song, the opening song is called You Know, and it's actually performed in 2040 by the character... Uh, who actually, well, Pris's voice actress, um, uh, which is Yu Asakawa. And we've got this, uh, probably, I think this is the most notable line in that song. <laughs> the, the secrets are locked up in your DNA. And I remember everyone I talked to about it just mentioned that line. Yeah, same. Like, that's the, that's the bit that me and my brother remembered. We'd just be like, so. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the bit that was just sort of like, okay, so um, I don't understand anything, a, a, any of the um, lyrics except for DNA. Yeah. That just stands out. So. <laughs> it's very hard to sing along to Japanese songs. Well, you say that, you, you know Actually, what I've been doing for the past week and a half. <laughs> <laughs> 
But, um, you know, th- there's a lot of story changes that were done for 2040. Lena doesn't start out as a night saver, instead being an office worker, um, and ends up seeing them fighting a rogue boomer. Uh, Cilia plays a less active combat role. Um, in the original series, she's mm. in all the fights. In this one, she puts on a suit, I think, only three or four times. Yeah. It's very minimal. Yeah. Um, so she's kind of in the background uncovering Boomer. Very cool suit, though. She, I like she's her She's the lady suit. in the chair. She's, uh, yeah. she's feeding them the data. Yeah. She's their support. Um, it also sh- is a lot clearer on how Cilia got the technology to make the suits and their construction, um, whereas it's just kind of alluded to in the original series. And her little brother, Mackie, plays a more prominent part in the series, showing his mechanical skills and so on. Um, Pris's interactions with Leon from the AD police. So Leon is uh, a major side character who is kind of always there whenever the night sabers are going and he's like a, a cop with the AD police who's yeah. trying to stop things and their relationship with one another just e- even just talking like from a friendly or knowing or acknowledging each other's existence stance was really quite odd in the original bubblegum crisis mm. in 2040 it's developed naturally it doesn't feel forced or pushed yeah. which is you know makes a lot more sense mm-hmm. and the final story arc is also a lot more fleshed out and clearly explains Cilia's connection to the boomer technology and what they're actually fighting against that was never discussed properly in the original bubblegum crisis yeah it seemed to be more monster of the week kind of thing yeah exactly now i didn't know this until i was doing research but there was a live action adaptation plan get out it was what? a western Live action adaptation, which of course ties into our theme this week. Um, in 2009, a live action adaptation was announced at the Cannes Film Festival. Oh, Cannes! This is wow. huge. Yes. So they were chucking their, they were just there chucking was it all in, this. saying we are going mm-hmm. for this. Now think about this. This would have to be a very big CG budget, right? Oh, huge. Yeah. How much? Do you remember how much Battle Angel Alita cost? <laughs> 170 million. Yeah. Do you want to know how much they uh, listed for this? Um, 30 million. There's no way that was going to look good. And in those days? Not even with practicals. Yeah. No. So that, not that was due for release in 2012. Nothing came of it, and I think I know why. So principal photography and casting were due to take place in Australia. Oh. Awesome. Yay. Um, but they were planning to do a reality TV show to find young stars to feature in the film. Oh, God, no. Young, yeah. Um, <laughs> American stars, I take it. Uh, no idea. If it was that, done in Australian, Australia, then... Japanese. Oh, no, I mean, they could have imported... Terrible personalities. But a reality like, TV show to pick for... Oh. Yeah, it's kind of a bit of an insult to the actor's craft, isn't yeah. it? It's they, they were going to put the them alongside a, A-listers, but I, I suspect mm. like no, knowing if they're looking for young people, that kind of goes... They'll probably get Pris and Celia as like big-name actors and then go for Lena and Nene for young, unknown actors, mm. Mackie for a young, unknown actor. Which <laughs> would be great for the actors. Mm-hmm. Oh, it might uh, you know, get them on the map, but it's if just the we're methods. talking about something with a CG budget of $30 million and just drawing randoms yeah. to be your stars. It reminds me of Jurassic Prey. <laughs> oh, no. What was the budget for that? Like $10 and a can of tea. I mean, there were a lot of things going around back in the early thousands for uh, live-action animes. Like, theorised that there would be a Cowboy Bebop one starring Keanu Reeves. Yeah. Which would be awesome. What was it? Full Metal Panic with Zac Efron? Well, uh, I mean... He would do a good job. He would actually do a good job because he is a massive fan of the Full Metal um, Panic manga. And let's face it, he's got the look. And a good actor. Mm. I mean, uh, admittedly, I absolutely despised him because of High School Musical, and <laughs> I, I'm clearly one of the few people who doesn't like it. But it's it's not. My, I've never not seen it. Favorite. I just saw his effort in um, 
I forget the name of the movie, the one where he uh, his character de-ages, becomes oh. young again. Oh, that yeah. was he did so well in that one. Thirty well, again or something. Tw- Twenty one again or something like that. Oh, uh, yeah. What, whatever. It was. Anyway. Um, anyway, um, this was a very classic cyberpunk thing, but that obviously brings us to today's topic, which is Alita. Wi-Fi Radio. That anime was a manga? That manga was an anime? Manga Kai. Yes, Alita Battle Angel. It's been doing the rounds in the cinemas, but before we get to what we thought of the movie, we should probably talk about where it came from. Mm. And that is an original manga called Gunnam. G-U-N-N-M. In the kanji, it translates as Gunmu, literally translating to Gun Dream. The funny thing is, not a lot of guns in it, are there? No, that's... Mm. Uh, no, that no. was an explicit <laughs> line in the movie and in the uh, anime too, I believe, that yes, guns were very, very illegal. Yes. So it was created and written by manga artist Yukito Kishiro between 1990 and 1995 and takes place in the 26th century in the former United States. Scrapyard slash Salem is meant to be located near Kansas City in Missouri, which is why the bar is called Kansas. That ah. is seen in there. And it's set in a post-apocalyptic future with Alita, a female cyborg who has lost all her memories. But her name is Gally. Her name in it? the original version is Gally. And the alley of Gally is actually referenced in both the OVA and the recent film adaptation. Mm. Of course, yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So she, she's found in the junkyard with only her upper chest part and head intact by Daizuki Ido, a cybernetics doctor who rebuilds and takes care of her. This all, if you've seen the trailer for the film, this all is probably sounding mighty familiar. The world of Battle Angel revolves around the city of Scrapyard, which is a massive scrap heap growing from the trash that rains down from the floating city, Salem slash Teferi's, depending on the adaptation you go with. And I'll come to that in a moment. Scrapyard residents have no access to the floating city and vice versa. And they make a living down below it, many serving the floating metropolis and needing cybernetic parts so that they can get by in the tough environment. Now, this is a manga that was hugely popular um, when it first came out in the 90s through 95. Absolutely. But uh, even though that's the case, its connection to current otakus isn't as strong as you'd think. And we'll, we'll... I will come back to that in a minute. But the, the whole story focuses on Galley slash Alita learning about her history and surviving in Scrapyard. And I've read all the manga volumes recently again to wrap my head around it. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that hasn't aged well. I, I would like to say that it's an a, a amazing classic, but you notice that some of the characters there motivations and i don't know if this is just in how it's been translated don't come across as honest or realistic as you'd think ido for instance is quite obsessive with um alita slash galley um i'm just going to call her alita from now on for ease of explanation fair enough um he in the first volume it's all to do with the hunter warriors and dealing with um makaku who's um renamed as uh what was his name in the film He's the big villain in the film outside of Vector. And he... Th- there's that whole story about that and she does, he, Ido doesn't want her to be um, the uh, a hunter-warrior. And then after that, you then have um, uh, the story to do with Rollerball and Ido doesn't want her to do Rollerball and instead backs her rival, 
mm. who is the champion um, of Motorball and does everything to help him so that she'll fail and come back home. You th- from from like a, a modern storytelling perspective, that makes him sound more like a villain, yeah, Quite, than, yes. than than a supporting character, or at least a foil to her plans. Mm-hmm. So th- th- there's that focus as well, and I mean each volume of the manga as well. Like the, most volumes are about seven to eight chapters long. Hmm. They have a very different feel to them, despite having the same setting. So mm-hmm. that hunter warrior saga is very you know alita learning about herself you then have the motorball story which is her rebelling which we you'll see in the film as well um and then you have the story revolving the bounty hunters of pan who um disappears and comes back completely tapped and then you've got chaos radio the bar jack nova each of these have such a very different feel to them compared to what you'd expect for a long-running anime. They feel like separate stories in the same interconnected universe. Interesting. I wonder how that'll be uh, handled in, you know, upcoming sequels. Well, um, if we do get uh, all three films that um, Cameron wants to make, then it... There's plenty of ways to do it, but it's it just felt like every time he went to continue the story, he felt like he was starting a new story. Mm. So almost reintroducing the characters. And it's, it works, but especially the third story, which is to do with Zapan, literally starts with Alita sitting there playing a piano and singing in a bar, and you're like, what has hmm. that got to do with Where what's happened that before? She, no, we never knew she could play piano. Yeah, it's and only a month's passed. What's hidden uh, <laughs> talents or yeah, I don't know, sure. YouTube tutorials? <laughs> YouTube tutorials in the scrapyard. Um, but what's a bit unusual is there's a lot of religious naming conventions involved in naming mm. locations, computers, art rivals, and so on. Um, the most blatant one is the reference to the Kabbalah Tree of Life in using Teferi slash Salem. Mm. Um, and the name of the supercomputer and later co- um, locations also um, use a similar naming convention. And the issue is is that the naming convention for the translation changed a lot when it came to English. So you've yeah. got the OVA, which we'll come to in a second, and the manga adaptation. So the original name is Galley. Um, after the, the cat, I believe. Yes, after the cat. Alita is the name they decide for the manga. The film goes with Galley. Same with... Hugo, who is actually originally Hugo, Y-U-G-O, in mm. both the fil- uh, the OVA and the manga. Um, Gimme, who is a supporting character to Doc Edo, he's called Clive Lee in the English adaptation of the manga. <laughs> yep, bit, bit odd. Um, Zapan, in, alternatively, is called Zavan in the OVA. Um, the Scrapyard is called Iron City in the OVA. And Salem slash Zalem in the OVA or Teferi's in the manga. So there was a lot of questions around what the correct translation of everything was. Mm. And that's kind of... It, it seems it's that's where a lot of the It's always an issue, isn't it? From. Yeah. Like yeah. you need to... It, it's not only a direct translation you're looking for, it's a cultural explanation as well. And mm-hmm. with it comes the context. Yeah. And you, it's so, that's why they talk about what's lost in translation so yeah. much, because the context is lost. I have a feeling so this thing will never stop being a debate among animes yeah. for ev- of all sorts. Well, you say that, but we then have, so, fun fact Battle, Al- Battle Angel Elita's overall story is still going. Oh. So, oh, yeah. after he wrote Gun in 1990. He wrote Ashen Victor, which is a prequel story focusing on a motorball uh, player, and that mm-hmm. that ran for about two years. 
And then he did a load of short stories connected to the universe between uh, 97 to 06. So he's fleshing out the world. Yeah. But from 2000 to 2014, he then created Battle Angel Alita Last Order, which was a direct sequel to Gun and kind of undoes the ending of it, Mm. um, which is a bit strange. Um, And then that finished in 2014, and then 2014 onwards, he created Battle Angel Alita Mars Chronicles, which is the final sort of chapter in the franchise and focuses on, like, the whole solar system because Mm -hmm. they they discuss this in the first few chapters of Battle Angel Alita, but humans spread out to the stars and then something happened. Yes, it's... um, I uh, haven't read the mangas or even watched many of the OVAs. I still need to get around to the two OVAs which you handed me. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, it's when I first figured Battle Angel Elite, I just thought, okay, it's a cyberpunk set on Earth. And then they mentioned that, oh, this happened with Mars. And I was like, whoa, okay, we're going full interstellar. Wonderful. That Um, kind of broadens the uh, scope a little. It does. Now, on the note of the OVAs, there were only two episodes released... And that was in 1993. Mm. And Kishiro, the original writer, was not involved in the production at all because he didn't care about it. Um, that, that sounds a bit rude, but he was so stressed and focusing on finishing the manga and he was too busy mm. and they, they didn't really consult him properly that it kind of is a bit of a mess. I've seen the OVA now. Mm. I haven't read the manga, mm-hmm. but the OVA I have watched. So it uses the first two volumes, mm. uh, introduces new characters such as Shirin, um, Ido's ex-wife, Uh, she's not in the manga at all. There is Mm. no reference to a previous relationship for him. Um, And the English translation, as I said, saw all those name changes involved in it. Now, that's... You know, it's it's one thing to change the name of characters as well, um, but to introduce completely new characters, to rewrite the story completely, to... They they completely ditched Motorball. That pretty much could have not existed in the OVA. Um, They decided they were going to have gladiator-style brawls, like one-on-one combat things. Which were as popular as Motorball. I rather liked the Motorball scenes. Oh, I know it's it, fantastic. I know it's kind of reminiscent of like having the pod races in Phantom Menace. It's sort of like a very, very long kind of a scene, but it was fantastic. It was fun. Mm. The Shirin in um, the OVA reminded me quite a lot of Dr. Akagi from oh, Evangelion. From Evangelion, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Which wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me if that was part of the influence for it, mm, too. Absolutely. Yeah, because um, Gynax was actually founded by anime fans, they weren't a standard studio. So that, that's where Gynax originated, which we will discover in a studio in focus session later. Oh, there'll be a lot to talk about there. We, we've given kind of a brief overview, uh, a bit brief messy overview of what the manga kind of set itself mm-hmm. up to be. But we should talk about the film before we run out of time. Wi-Fi Radio. We'll be there on time. There's 20 minutes of ads. Cinema Club. Well, Battle Angel Alita, Alita, Battle Angel, depending on what version you want to go by, because I am terrible. You you guys have a story about when you went to see it, don't you? Oh, yes. We did. So our little sequence at the start of these sections says, um, we'll be there on time. There's over 20 minutes of ads. Yeah, we were running rather late. We were running, in fact, 20 minutes late. We walked in. We bought our popcorn. We'd sat down. The last part of Captain Marvel's video ended and the film started. Exactly 20 minutes after it was meant to begin. It's like it was (laughs) meant to be. Uh, uh, Clearly, it's just uh, amazing. But we do need to have a look at how this film's been doing. Now, there's a lot of good things about this film, but let's just talk about ratings first because this is where a lot of people are being misled. Indeed. So, Rotten Tomatoes. 
Critics are giving it 60%. Oh, That's from 300 reviews. 21,000 audience reviews, 94%. Oh. Metacritic, 48 critics, 54%. 1,000 user reviews, 87%. This comes back to my belief that art forms cannot be given a numerical score. Exactly. It's whether you enjoy it or not. It's whether Um, it speaks to you, how it speaks to you. You know, <laughs> Google uses ninety five percent like the film, and that when you consider that anyone who ser- searched for Battle Angel Alita would see that option to vote it, that's saying a lot. Yeah, mm. this is fantastic. I mean, yeah, you just gotta see these things for yourself. If someone says this anime is terrible, this one's no good, you should watch this one instead. Take a look at everything and mm. just decide for yourself. The anime genre is so broad; you should. It, there will be something to appeal to uh, everyone. Prime mm-hmm. example, Domestic Girlfriend. Didn't think it was going to be good. Absolutely hooked. Possibly my favourite anime this season. Wow. So it, it's... Them's big words. It's big fighting <laughs> words. <laughs> so yeah, it's, I think, yeah, I am just never going to pay attention to the critical scores ever again. Mm. So the box office stats, and this is something we've mentioned before. Um, Battle Angel Leader cost $170 million to make. You Ooh. then got your um, adaptation budget and then you... Uh, sorry, your advertising budget. And you then have to take into account what the cinema takes from the cuts. So where they were saying, depending on who you talk from, Fox internally think they only need to make about $350 million to break even, according to internal sources. External groups who are looking at it think it needs to make almost half a billion. Currently, two weeks in, in the US box office, it's taken 65 million. It was number one for the Valentine's Day long weekend. Um, I think it's President's Day long weekend in the States. And internationally, it has now taken 222 million. Has has it been released internationally yet? Yes, so it did actually open earlier than the US, and I think it was 10 markets. But China only opened last week and it has taken 65 million in that week now but keep it keep in mind that just because you take 65 million doesn't mean the studio gets 65 million Um, but it's been competing against the wandering earth which is possibly the biggest film china has seen in a long time and this is still fox's biggest opening of all time in china that is fantastic you can't ignore those figures you have a look at um some of the other markets uh from international south korea took 16 million that's been open for three weeks france has took 11 million russia 10.3 the uk 10 million and japan opened a week late similar to china it's only taken 3.1 million now Mm -hmm. the japan japanese figures and i've seen a lot of people debating this online as to whether it will do well in japan it says a lot when they're advertising it with Avatar and Titanic on the um, bill card saying this is the creator of those and are not saying from the gun manga. And, and that's because current generations of the Koro Taku audience wouldn't really know what it is. Mm. Are you serious? Yeah. you got to remember, so the, this manga is over 25 years old. Yeah, similar to yeah. Dread. It's over I 25 guess. years old. And while there is a current manga running, it's designed for the Sinan audience, not the Shonen audience, which is the big target audience that works at the moment. I guess I can see the uh, tactical idea of that then. But James Cameron's been so invested in this project for, for years. Uh, Dark Angel was influenced by Battle Angel Alita. <laughs> like, wow. That, that, that's saying a lot. It's uh, going way back. That's mm-hmm. like... Yeah, that was uh, Jessica Alba was the star of that. And that was before she was big. That was before she was famous in any way at all. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, let, let's talk about the movie. So, first first off the cards, and all three of us have seen it. I've seen yep. it twice now. Um, pacing. 
I thought it was great. Mm. What I noticed is that um, similar to the pacing of Shin Godzilla, mm. it took you. It, it slowly peaked and it stayed there. There was no first act peak, second act trough, third act peak. It was all very consistent. Up there, yeah. yeah, so consistent. Um, I loved it. T- to be honest, the pacing in the film is. Uh, I love the manga, but the manga is very self-contained arcs, as I previously mentioned. Mm. The film has taken the first and second arc and combined them together into a very very good mash mm-hmm. so that they work together with so those points where you think there'd be a, a dip the other art comes into play which is a risky maneuver to take for an adaptation but mm. it's for the way it blended so seamlessly together you can tell that the people behind this actually had a passion for how it. beautiful were the sets the set the set design and the cg were phenomenal um and i really paid attention on my second viewing to see like the cg on rosa salazar's face um for the body that she was using it's really really well done and i mm. i ho- hope and I, I believe it will age quite well and rosa salazar herself like the fact that <gasps> she does such a good job oh, she is she held up that film she is a she is just adorable. Yeah, she did, didn't I wish she? to hug her. I th- I feel like her character in the film was very much the same as Gally's character in the OVA. Mm. And I know what what did you think of her character I, in the, I, I in the manga? I thought her acting compared to both the manga and OVA source is fantastic because yeah. she's in, so she's so innocent. She is, isn't but she? It's, it, it wasn't just like how she portrayed it; it's how she moved. And uh, particularly when she got up the bed, it was very organic but robotic, mm. for instance, um, th- when she's going to sneak out at night. And uh, other, other bits like that where I've seen her do things when she's moving her fingers individually. It's robotic but it's organic. It's really hard to explain but it's such a beautiful hybrid blend. Yeah, it's mm. And being able to pull that off as an actor, especially with motion capture, is hard. You've got to be very precise, yeah. very deliberate in your movements. And she did an amazing job of that. I yeah. feel like we can't go past talking about Salazar without mentioning the obvious, that she looks so different to everyone else. Her eyes yeah. are incredibly massive. Everything about her is like mm. anime-esque. But you notice how everyone made a big deal about that, especially a certain Hollywood publication, which has been slamming this since it was announced. <laughs> um, <coughs> Hollywood deadline. Um, <coughs> but... You, after the first two minutes, you didn't notice it. No, it blended in seamlessly with the rest of the world. Exactly. It was... And, and yeah, that's the thing. I uh, looked this up as well. Um, how much of her would you say face-wise, head-wise was CG? Don't know. Well, like, uh, you'd figure all I of it, I found right? it very hard to say. Yeah. Um, how much uh, of the rest uh, of... I, the eyes and jaws would be the main focus. How much of the rest of her body do you figure? <laughs> well, I mean... I mean she probably was wearing a mocap suit, but I, I'd s- we, we saw very clearly that almost all of it was motion captured, yeah. Yeah, every square inch of her CG, and yet physically it blended in perfectly mm. with the world. Mm-hmm. C- can, I, can I take a moment to mention her hair? <laughs> and how in, in the, from what I've seen of the manga, from watching the OVA and seeing the film, it was like, oh, the hair is just great. Yeah, <laughs> the hair really works. Well. <laughs> now, we, we could talk about Rose for ages, but let's talk about supporting characters. Dyson Ido instead of um, Daisuke Ido um, mm. by Christoph Waltz. Now, Christoph Waltz can do no wrong in my book. I mean, d- don't get me wrong. There were some badly scripted lines, but those are not... You can't blame mm. the actor for that. You have to blame the scriptwriter. And yeah. 
I have to say, most of those lines were by Hugo, not by uh, yeah, Elena or it's, Lisa. Um, that was one thing that I picked up on. Mm. I felt like a lot of the dialogue, especially around when when Hugo Hugo um, introduces her to Rollerball, mm-hmm. I felt like the dialogue was quite simplistic. Yeah, um, which is fine. Like if you're if you're an actor, you can do heaps with it. But that's why I want to know if there's a director's cut. Yeah, I feel like there were editing decisions made as well that, that there were affected the pacing made a little bit. That oh. um, so Cameron wrote the original script and he had I think it was a three hundred page script and six hundred pages of notes. Oh. To adapt to it and he then gave that to Rodriguez to go through and that's that's how they came up with the final script mm. it's so um Hugo though I figure that's his role he's supposed to be that sort of a person uh, I think yeah. I do have to say that the romance arc in the film was actually better done than the manga and I know that'll peeve a lot of people who love the manga off but it's very quickly and rough it feels rushed like it's a way to force Gally to grow up in the manga whereas in this it feels like it's a core component of the story sure it's not as strong but it's still stronger than the manga I love how determined she is to protect her beliefs yeah I love that and I didn't detect any part of the dreaded Mary Sue yeah I didn't detect yeah. any yeah, of that and that was really satisfying she has been a consistently strong female character and yeah. I hate that and term but you know it's it's, it's actually what, true. Mm-hmm. And Mahershala Ali as Vector, he did a great oh, job. I love him. Um, now, with, without doing any spoilers, which we always avoid here, um, there is several scenes where Mahershala plays two characters and he does it seamlessly. Mm-hmm. Oh, wonderful. And We're going to keep using that, that word seamlessly, amazing. aren't we? Mm-hmm. It, well, it, to, to be honest, like, there, there, is, there are problems with the film. There are With every film, there's no film which is perfect. There are no. going to be decisions made which are not going to please every fan. Um, but they did their best with the source material mm. they had and with oh, the limited so well. budget they had. I mean, you have a look at the action sequences, the motorball sequences, the fight scenes. They are all very, very schmick. They mm. are smooth. They are very fluid. They are mm-hmm. great. I want to do a shot-by-shot relook at a bunch of the fight scenes. They're just, mm. oof. Yeah, but fun. very well done. With, this does bring us back to the story. Um, and o- overall, coming from the manga background... I loved it. Yes. Now, I, I feel like it was a very good adaptation. It wasn't 100% faithful, but nothing ever is. And you are, a, I wouldn't say you're a purist for these manga things, but you do hold the manga uh, rendition to a higher speed. Yeah, I, I do. And if, if they can do it well on paper, well, I don't see why they can't do it well on screen. Exactly. Because that that requires more imagination to pull out of the listener, usually if it's written on paper, uh, the yeah. reader when it's written on paper. But the accuracy at the adaptation, the, the opening scene of the film in the scrapyard is scene for scene from both the manga and the OVA. Which is mm. wonderful. And the story itself is kind of a hybrid of both the manga and the OVA. They've taken parts from the OVA, such as introducing Shirin um, and uh, you know other bits and pieces um, and interactions between them to kind of squish them together. And I what this really tells me is that Cameron was a fan of the show. Yeah. He was. I loved the barroom brawl. Oh. That was one of my favourite parts mm. and they did that so well. When you watch the OVA, you'll see... Just how well it mashes up and mm-hmm. yeah, I loved the film too. The berserker body, Elita's second body in the film, Ido found it in the manga from a crash ship and without spoiling the film, it's uh, Ido doesn't find it but it still honours that original 
discovery by actually showing you where it is. Yes. Um, one of the final scenes um, to do with um, Alita, uh, li- literally in the last three minutes of the film, is incredibly accurate to both the OVA and the manga. And we, we are talking frame for frame. It is phenomenally accurate. And then there's so many character references throughout it from the manga. Uh, the motorball champion, Jashugan, is shown in it. And he's, um, I can't remember the actor that portrayed him, but you see him in the pits very briefly getting, you know, set up and he po- going, oh, this part of the um, equipment's out of line. I need you to fix this. I need you to fix that and get me back on the track. And Just he like plays he an important role later on, I assume. Yeah, yeah. He, he's a huge part of the second story arc. Um, the, vel- the villain, Gruishka, who's called Makaku in the manga, he's got a long snake body in the manga and he can kind of steal other cyborgs' bodies. Mm. Now, that doesn't really work from a cinematic point of view and they didn't really do that so much. Uh, well, they, they did in the OVA, but it was a bit interesting. Um, but there's a scene where he's removed from his torso and he swings his spine like a snake. There's um, <laughs> a little light nod back to the, the original sounds thing. so creepy. And... This I actually really liked, Koyumi. So this is um, an actor, uh, this is a character played by Lana Condor. So she's from Deadly Class. She played Jubilee in X-Men Apocalypse. So Koyumi in the background, she's the girl with the pigtail. She wears a yellow jacket. Yeah, she gets Um, a bunch of lines. She's um, she's Hugo's mate. In the manga, she was an orphan infant in the bar in Canvas. She's the adopted daughter of the barkeeper of the bar Kansas. Um, so it's a nice little nod to her because she actually becomes super important in the manga when she grows up and becomes older. Fantastic. So it, it, it's, I love Something the fact that, yeah, I love the fact that they kept her character in there without doing the, oh, it's a baby in a bar full of bar, you know, you know, mercenaries mm. <laughs> because that's just not, that, that's not a happy ending for anyone. Let's be honest. But I mean, th- there's so many things to like about the film, and every despite seeing it two times, because normally when you watch a film a second time, you might find more and more things to dislike. I just found more and more things to enjoy, and I mean that's probably coming from the manga background, knowing what to look for, being more aware of it, mm. getting over the spectacle of the first time. You know, I would also say that the second time you saw it, you went and saw it on IMAX with the full 3D sound and stuff like that. Yeah, and that the the sound. Uh, that's, that's very well done. Oh, yeah, yes. I'm very pleased with that. So, do you have any final thoughts on the film that you'd like to say? I give it nine touch comas out of ten. I want to see a director's cut. Well, I'll give it nine Damascus swords out of ten. <laughs> <laughs> Kawhi Fi Radio. Well, that is all the time we've got for this episode of Kawaii Fire Radio. We'll be back in two weeks with a uh, bit more information on anime history and we'll be focusing on food in yes. anime. I cannot wait for this. And we're gonna favourite s- subject. And we are going to talk about an ancient proverb that good cabbage equals good anime, which we will discuss in detail. <laughs> so true. <laughs> and uh, ho- hopefully I'll be a bit more cheerful yeah, between now and I, then. I prescribe you a healthy dose of Comfort Camp. Mmm, nothing like some good comfy camp. Yeah. Uh, that mightn't help, though, because I unfortunately started reading the uh, domestic offense <gasps> authors you prior Why are you doing this to yourself? <laughs> what can I say? I'm a sucker for love punishment. Oh, my. <sighs> There's always one, isn't there? Yeah. Either way, we'll be back in a fortnight. Please subscribe. Have a look on our Facebook page. You can see some great stuff on there. And we'll be back soon. See you next time. Thanks Adios. for joining us. <laughs>